Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. Today, you are here to uncover the mysteries of Urbit. I'm here with Josh Lehman, the ED of Urbit Foundation, and AJ Lamarck, who is a bona fide Urbit shill, so he calls himself. He also built the uh, fully self-hosted decentralized front end for Uniswap and Osmosis that's powered by Urbit. We're going to get into the details today. And before you know, we started this show, Josh actually spun helped me spin up my own Urbit Planet. So we're going to actually give you a visual demo of that today. And check it out if, you know, you've, you haven't seen these already. These are, uh, let's see, I'll show you, Interchain FM uh, rugs made by Mr. Alex Miggs. So these are pretty cool. We're going to have these on offer for NFT-backed suit drops as well. So stay tuned in the future. All right. Enough about that. Josh and AJ, welcome to the show. It's your first uh, Cosmos show, and we're very excited to have this intersection between Cosmos and Urbit. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Um, let's go over your background so the cosmonauts can get acquainted with you. What is your background, Josh? Let's start with you. Yeah. Let's see. So... Spent a much time founding startups in San Francisco Bay Area uh, because I happened to be there. Right, crossed as with the Urbit crew uh, in about 2016. Met a bunch of people at those meetups, got really into it, and happened to be working on a startup that was coming out of YC and uh, racing successfully. And there was really only room for uh, one life-consuming thing at the time. Um, so I worked on that startup for about four years while remaining in touch with the Urbit group of, group of folks. Um, in 2020, I really dove back in because in 2020, Urbit was going through this pivotal moment where uh, it you know it had been a like a research project for the last six seven years that people had been hearing about it, and that was the moment that a real product actually launched and was using it, which is very exciting. And then that sent the signal that you could actually build something else with it. Uh, it's it's reaching some point of maturity, and so I dove in. As a developer, just enthusiastic, I learned the language for the third time at that point. Uh, took a stab at building a calendar and partnered up with a guy who was way better uh, than I was at building a calendar um, and realized that there were actually a whole bunch of people working in the community who were really good at building all kinds of things. And so I found my way into talking to Galen, uh, one of the founders of Urban, uh, CEO of Talon, and he I kept discussing, and long story short, I ended up working with Intelon to help launch the Urbic Foundation. It's kind of a, an incubated company within a company uh, that proceeded for about a year and a half to a stint as Talon's chief of product, where I worked on uh, let the project to release software distribution over most of 2021. 
And that was what actually let developers really build their own applications and ship them to people and remains the main mechanism that people use to build apps, make them discoverable um, and installable in a peer-to-peer fashion. Um, and I've been working on the Urban Foundation uh, since it spun out of Talon uh, in the beginning of 2022. And yeah, it's a little on me. Awesome. How'd you get Urbit pilled, AJ? Um, yeah, I guess mine's a lot more recent story, so hopefully I have some some more context to share there. Um, so I guess I was just kind of finished up college, um, started working kind of general, like big tech, software engineering, and this just kind of looking around for something a bit more interesting, like to think about in my free time. Um, and I, I'm in, I'm in Florida and kind of a few weeks before assembly last year in Miami, the, um, kind of the big urban conference, I found out about it, um, just was saw on their website that they had a conference in Miami. So just kind of sprung got some tickets, drove down to, to Miami state of defense place. Um, kind of brought him along with it, tried to get him into it. Also, I don't think it kind of stuck with him, but, um, definitely I had, I had a really good time and thanks Josh for um, setting up that conference. There was a lot of, a lot of alpha and interesting stuff going on there. And I think that was kind of when I saw that there was a lot of potential and maybe also a lot of potential that isn't being kind of fully utilized yet. I think, um, uh, there's still, still a nascent ecosystem, but the opportunity space is in there in spades, I think. Um, so just been kind of posting about it, trying to get people excited about it. Um, in my free time for right now and also i guess kind of where i broke into the community more was just posted a one-off tweet after spending an hour kind of building uniswap to run on orbit and that ended up getting a lot of attention then i got a lot of introductions for to everyone in the community and um there's definitely a lot of really nice people and have gotten a lot of support there and um so then i kind of ended up becoming the self-hosted front-end guy for it so kind of took that a step further got uniswap all fixed up and ready so you can trade on it now and then also um did the the grant recently for osmosis and um also have a deployment for gnosis safe so you can kind of after you install um gnosis safe or uniswap or osmosis on your urban machine is yours forever and you can um kind of just access it without having to hit a um centralized website for to be able to trade, you're just kind of, it's just you and the chain and your self-hosted deployment. So I think there's a lot of um, utility there and trying to kind of keep the ball moving there. So we're, we'll get into your integration and how that has uh, downstream effects for Cosmos users. Um, but, you know, this there, there's actually a surprising amount of early cosmonauts that are into Urbit, which led to this recent integration. Um, so actually, one of the very earliest Cosmos contributors is um, Brian Crane. And he's part of, he's really deep into Urbit. So he had been Urbit pilling Sonny Agarwal, you know, co-founder of Osmosis. And then Sonny, you know, this this virus spread. Sonny, Sonny was, was telling me that Urbit has this undercurrent of, you know, like a 50,000 person strong community. And it's this like very tight knit core community. They're all the gung ho about this thing called Urbit, which is this, I don't know, it almost has a 
cult-like following, which is what I found. It was very interesting. Um, and then, so I went to the uh, Urbit Assembly in Miami, the you know, the one that you were at last year. And that was when it, I, I saw it. I felt it. You know, the community was so, it was very... Um, so yes yes i did and people were drinking the kool-aid and i was like sipping at the kool-aid going like what is everyone seeing here that i'm not seeing but at the same time i come at it from the angle of you know i've been looking deeply into the decentralized web for the last three years ever since you know handshake kind of started this whole thing like broken open the rabbit hole for me and urbit seemed to have come at that same grand vision but from a completely different angle you know herb is more talking well the way that you address it is you want to kind of boil the ocean right you want to like build a fully integrated stack that lets everybody you know have that um web 2 experience but on a peer-to-peer network so um and then Handshake comes at it from a different angle, right? We're going to do only like one application-specific thing at a time and then build upwards. So the uh, meeting in the middle is where I think a lot of these projects like Urbit, Osmosis, Slash Cosmos, uh, and Handshake could really stand to benefit and like break ground into mass adoption. So we're going to talk about that. And um, AJ, you just said you completed an integration for Osmosis for a fully decentralized front-end. What is... What does that mean? Um, I guess. And wait, why yeah. does it matter? Why do pe- why would people care? You know, why do you need a decentralized front end? Before, I guess, without deep diving too much into technicalities, um, kind of the the problem is decentralization is only like as decentralized as the the most cent- most centralized part of the the use. Um, I guess it's it's kind of like a, a weakest link issue. Um, so. You kind of have right. You're you're as decentralized as your most what, centralized component. Or doing yeah. that right? <laughs> um, so, pretty much in every kind of DeFi application, you have your backend, which is fully decentralized, and then somewhere in the middle, you have um, kind of like an inferior connection, um, which is kind of in the middle where there's some centralized things happening, and then you have like the well, centralized me, it's like a single point of failure. It's like one company that runs the infrastructure be- that powers, I don't know, over 90% of the applications on Ethereum, including MetaMask, some of the most important gateways into Ethereum. And if that goes down or if, you know, the ban hammer comes down on that company, then so I get your Tornado Cash is a really good case study in this because it's like, sure, you can't censor the the contracts, but you can cut off the connection to Infura and Alchemy and whoever serves the front end and their Discord server and they're dead in the water. Right. So go ahead, AJ. What you- yeah. So I guess kind of taking it from the beginning, the the first point you're hitting and the first like fully centralized part of your web three experience, I guess, is you're visiting app.uniswap.org or app.osmosis.zone. And that's kind of like your your portal into interacting with the chain. Um, so if that website got blocked in your area or taken down, then um, your experience of being able to use the chain or make trades is pretty much shut down already. Um, so kind of being able to self-host your own front end is like the first major step in towards 
like full decentralization of um you may have to obviously download the application code itself for the the javascript one time but after you have it installed then um it's still hitting the same chain endpoint so there's not much support that's needed and you can just kind of keep using it on your local machine without having to kind of revisit this centralized point of failure every time you want to make a trade. So, I mean, this is, okay, there's, there's, there's a, there's good and bad, right? It's that, you know, if you can, with relatively low friction, spin up another front end for something to continue interacting with a chain, you know, how do you solve for the problem of phishing? Yeah, so kind of right now, um, small scale on Urbit is is mostly a, a trust-related thing. So you know that the um, the deployed version of Osmos is under my server is good to go. And Urbit kind of handles the um, validation of the of the JavaScript code that gets delivered to you, making sure that the, the hash for that lines up with what you're expecting. Um, but I guess kind of long-term where I'd want to be pushing is more towards like an IPF cl- IPFS client built on top of Urbit. Um, so that's kind of a more tried and true deployment solution and being able to just easily access that from Urbit. Um, and you can kind of always see, you know, what what's the IPFS hash that the developers of this product are recommending that you use. And then um, your client will automatically validate that. And that'll kind of protect you against the phishing even more than if you were visiting the the URL every single time you want to use Osmosis. Gotcha. Okay, so we're going to throw it to Josh now. Um, so if you're watching this video on YouTube or Twitter, you will see that we have these weird words, string of words next to our names. So I'm a Dabbler Sitper, and Josh is Wolf Ref, Wolf Ref Podlex. And AJ is Larry X Wool Year, <laughs> something like that. Um, let's let's go into that. What what's going on here? Why are we named that way, Josh? Yeah, so these are network addresses, and each one of them is actually just a number. And there's an algorithm that transforms that number into a consonant vowel consonant sequence, and it's consonant vowel consonant because it's easy to speak. So wool, ref, pot, likes, each one of those letters, those uh, trios, consonant, call, consonant, CVC, uh, is eight bits, right? Uh, so wool, ref, pot, likes is a 32-bit address. And this is a lot easier to remember than, say, the closest analog, which is an IPv4 address on the internet, uh, which is a IPS, right. right? So you can think about wool, ref, pot, likes, Lyrics will dire, dabbler said per as phone numbers. Right? It's like it's a unique way to address whoever is behind that address. In the same way that an IP address is kind of like a phone number, except the IP address is sort of a crappy way to address someone because there's no someone behind an address. It's just usually some server running on the open internet, and that's there's no you know real sense of consistency with what stays there over time. So those are invisible, whereas urban IDs and the uh, we call them cat peas for, you know, we have we have weird terms for everything because engineers like to be very precise in their language. Uh, but what does pat pee mean? So it's a type. Pat is what we call the at sign. 
uh, and then P is phonetic. So Pat P is the phonetic type. And so if you're dealing with a number in the Urbit operating system, you can convert that to Pat P using that a certain way and you end up with, that's like what you use to convert numbers into this scheme. And so that's used frequently throughout the system to refer to what would otherwise be very difficult to remember things, just numbers like IP addresses into things that are human legible and uh, remember all of them. That's what you want in an ID, which serves this in the urban system, a unique way to address the person who hides that. In an urban, every single ID corresponds, at least if they're running it, to a version of their server uh, that they're running. And that's what runs all their software. And that ID is used to sign every packet in Urbit's peer-to-peer network. So when I run software, when I run, you know, the osmosis application, I'm running it from my Urbit operating system, which is server. And if anyone wants to talk to me, they do so using that Urbit ID. Okay. So I was actually surprisingly able to follow you throughout this entire explanation but to be yes to be fair this is this is the third time i have talked to you and the first and second times it went over my head so let's unpack that a little bit you know if if i may my understanding of urbit was that you have a did system that as you explained is similar to ipv4 um and, and, you know, questions about that, right, is, you know, does it have a finite address space? Are you going to have to later, you know, hard fork the entire network to IPv6 to increase the address space? You know, what's going to, is it finite, you know, um, it right? It is finite. So so pr- probably in, let's say, 20 years, it, imagine if, you know, decentralized web gains mass adoption and then you're going to need to migrate the entire network to a larger address space like IPv6. Like mind to know that there are not 4 billion people on the internet yet. Like IPv4 is not an exhaustion. Okay. So in, you know, these, what would it be, 30 or so years since we've had the internet, we still have not hit the 4 billion mark, the 4.3 billion, which is okay. space of IPv4, which is saying is urban ID. But the question is still good. Like, well, what happens if we hit that limit? Do we want to add it more? And the answer is probably yes at some point. I don't know when that'll be. Uh, it could be you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. There is a mechanism to increase that. Chances are you always want it to actually be finite. The finite is what makes it scarce. It makes it valuable. And that is how Urbit solves the problem of civil resistance, uh, which... Uh, because there's, right, there's there's actually financial constraints attached to it. So 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 the way that it... In, or like it, the way that it soft enforces civil resistance... Is because there is a cost to having multiple uh, pet peas. That's correct. Okay. It All right. It's valuable. So the cost of spinning up a bajillion of them in order to, you know, run a spam network means that you know that cost increases for each ID that you burn being a spammer. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, right. Interesting. And thereby you solve for stuff like email spam or like phishing spam. Okay, my understanding, yeah. You said like, and so there is this mechanism to upgrade it, like the contracts. You know, so Urban IT is implemented on Ethereum, a series of smart contracts. That's what defines the address space and the size of it, how many ATs there are. 
that can be extended. Right? The contracts can be upgraded through uh, a vote of special orbit IDs. There's 256 of these. They're called galaxies. Uh, they provide governance over the network. They also provide other technical aspects to for peer routing, uh, packet forwarding, things like that. But uh, the holders of those through a vote can upgrade the contracts. So that's the only way the contracts can be upgraded. So it's it's essentially a proto DAO. Uh, they can determine what the rules of that address space are, and that's how you would extend how many IDs there are. Um, it would probably always be finite. You'd want it for that to keep the civil resistance. But in a world in which you know we're up against the four billion mark, we want there to be more IDs. It could be done. So how how okay. All right, let, let's just, I'm just going to back up here for a second. So words, 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 galaxies, uh, stars, planets, right? Uh, the, these things are analogous to, you know, a planet would be a top level domain example, like com, org, io. Yeah, yeah right? Exactly. Like it's the most valuable uh, domain name space. And then uh, uh, below, directly below that, on the bottom, uh, lower rung, would be like a domain, which would be a star, and then a subdomain, directly one rung below, would be a planet, which is which is what uh, maps to each of our our pat P's. Is that right? Yeah, it's so it's a little it's a little different, and it's not a clean analogy because an urban ID sort of encompasses like a domain name in addition to an IPv4 address. And so on the internet, you have domain names which map to IPv4 addresses. The IP address can change, the domain name is the same. And the IPv4 address is sort of like an invisible detail behind the scenes. But like the stars and galaxies actually have more of an analog to what you find in IP. Like IPv4 addresses are grouped into zones, and those zones are grouped into DNS root blocks, right? So there's these big blocks of address space in. IPv4, they're partitioned basically the same way the urban, the urban address space is. And so a star is like a block of a whole bunch of planets, and galaxy is a block of a bunch of stars. Got it. All right. And I would like to share my screen and give you, the listeners, a view of what Josh and I spun up right before we started this live stream. So here uh, I'm in a messaging chat. It kind of looks like IRC, to, uh, but you know, it's more, I, so, so my understanding of Urbit was is, uh, so, so B Balaji was your keynote speaker at, uh, hey, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the the way that Balaji described it at a twenty thousand foot view, uh, like grand vision of Urbit, is that it's this fully integrated vertical stack, and chat is just one of them, right? We so in 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 Web two, we're used to uh, these bespoke native apps. You know, you go to Instagram to check it out, or you go to Twitter to you know do whatever. Um, and then you have your signals and your telegrams for chat and, and it's all these different companies, but Urbit, the reason why I say that you guys are trying to boil the ocean is because you want to have all of those 
fully integrated into your single OS that anybody could spin up, right? So help help me understand how this is fundamentally uh, like inverting the Web2 operating framework on its head. <laughs> Good. So... Yeah, I'll come at it from a slightly different angle, right? But like looking at your screen, what you're looking at is an app that runs on Arabic called Talk. It is one of actually multiple different chat applications that have been built. Uh, like the two others were built this year. Um, it doesn't take all that long to build them. Um, AJ's Osmosis application is also just an Urbit application. So Urbit is this computer that can run arbitrary applications. Uh, like we, we call it an operating system because it is one. Uh, it's not an operating system the same way Mac OS or Windows is. It's an operating system designed for a personal server. And a personal server is not a thing that actually really exists uh, on the internet. It was supposed to. Like people originally thought people would ever run their own server. They would serve their own web pages from their own domains. And that was sort of like the dream of the 90s was you have this web full of different pages that are run by different individual people. Uh, like it turns out that running your own web server is actually pretty difficult. And so those things started to aggregate around people that ran servers as a service. And those services are what pe normal people interact with as clients. So Urban is designed to be easy enough for a person to just run their own server because Urban is a very simple system. And it's designed around this use case of you know, I run server, that's what I interact with. And that server can actually talk directly to all the other servers. This is uh, a little more intentional nerve than it was on the web. So this talk application, right? My, your urbit that you're running here is serving a client that you used to talk to it, but the server is your urbit. So all those chat messages, like when you send a message to me, your server is reaching out, talking to mine and sending that message directly to me, we are the only two people that share those. So we're both running the code, the, the same code for this talk application, and we're storing all of those messages, right? So the difference with, say, Web2 is that in a Web2 instance, you'd have one entity running the server and everyone else talking to the same server. In this case, everyone runs their own server, and the servers talk to one another, right? And that's, that's right. really the big difference here. Well, in this case, I'm not running this server, though. You are, and I'm using a hosted oh. server, right, by Talon. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm not affiliated with Talon, and I don't run this. There are multiple hosting companies. Uh, there's one called Holium Hosting. There's a company called Holium. They run hosting service as well. Uh, there's another one that launched recently called Red Horizon, which is uh, actually spun out of course one, uh, Brian's own a company as well. There are also, uh, yeah, and so you're not running the server. Someone else is running it for you. But there's a really cool property about Urbit, which is that that entire server, and including all of the running software and all of the data that lives in the running software that makes them interesting, these chat messages, for instance, can be packaged up into a single file, moved to any other physical machine, whether that be another hosting provider or a dedicated piece of Urbit hardware, like the kind that native climate builds. Uh, or your local laptop, or a DigitalOcean droplet that you run in the cloud, or a Hetzner droplet that, or 
whatever they call them, ad server server that you pay for with Bitcoin. It's the same, and it's exactly the same, right? You can move that file to any of those places, run the Urbit program on it, which is just one program, and that it comes up exactly like it was before. And you can, you have all the same data, all the same applications, you use them the same way, right? So with a hosting provider, you can start where someone runs this for you to make it very easy. If you really want to run this yourself, you can do that. You can export the entire thing into that one file and move it to whichever system that you want to run it for. And this is very different than say, you know, to use a dumb example, Twitter, right? Like let's imagine that Twitter for a moment allowed you to download all of your tweets. Uh, they don't, but if they did, it would be totally useless because those tweets are useless without the running application that is Twitter that can talk to everyone else that has tweets. And that's the same for pretty much every web to service. Even if you have your data, it's worthless because it's in some special format for that application and running the application involves running a database server, probably a bunch of like load balancers in order to deal with all the traffic. Uh, all kinds of infrastructure goes into running modern web two applications because they serve a huge number of people. And so your data is useless if you can't actually run the software yourself that utilizes it. And that's, you know, why like hosting an Urbit is not like using a web two service because you can actually take the Urbit out of the hosting service and run it yourself or with another hosting provider who didn't like the other one and you end up the same experience. Is the innovation that if I choose to have it hosted and have somebody else take responsibility for my data, I can do so. But at the same time, I also have the option of uh, ripping my data out and all of the running software and stick it somewhere else and, and then serve it up myself. Yeah. Whereas that that's not an option right in right to exit. You can always exit into whatever degree of self-sovereignness you want, if that's really important to you, you can also optimize for ease of use and let someone else maintain it and ensure that it continues to run smoothly, which is, you know, more of a concern right now than it will be in the future because Urban is still under heavy development and it does break from time to time. We screw up uh, while we're, you know, making changes and tweaking things and anyone's used it for a while knows that sometimes, you know, things go down and don't work as you'd expect them to which is part of the course of being under heavy development. Right. And the right to exit pretty much sums up the reason for the entire crypto industry's existence. The raise on Tatra, the right to the right to exit if you're unhappy with the status quo. Yeah, I think so. And that's a big part of the reason, you know, Urbit predates crypto uh, to some degree. It's hard to say because Urbit was being worked on over some period of time that Satoshi was working on his white paper and to were announced to the world at similar points in time. I think the white paper came out in 2009 and the first public mention of Urbit was early 2010, January. Um, but the two have kind of converged because of this exact uh, concern that you just mentioned of the right to exit. And here we are talking uh, on the show because, you know, crypto uh, sees a lot of value in, in Urbit and vice versa because we are striking from the same thing. Right. Um, yeah, fun fact, actually. So one of the most watched videos about Cosmos that onboarded our uh, new newest set of community members, uh, it was it was done by uh, Sunny Agarwal, shot by me, and we did it 
at the Purse office in San Francisco, which is right next door to Urbit, your office. In, that was 2018. And I didn't even know about you guys. I mean, I heard there was another crypto company in the same compound, but um, never thought twice. And then suddenly connected the dots at uh, assembly when I met the foundation members. So that's just funny little tidbit. Anyway, um, so when we first, you know, before we started the show, when when we were spinning up um, our little uh, DM together, it took a few minutes to bootstrap, right? And you're helping me wrap my head around how your intergalactic, you know, uh, communication peer-to-peer, like peer discovery protocol works. Let's talk about that. So basically what's happening? Yeah. It, I mean, it gets a low level of a hurry and I'm by no means the best person to talk about this, but, uh, you know, basically when I send you a message for the first time, uh, this is a peer to peer network, but somehow our peers have to discover one another. Like we have to figure out where in the world is this other node that I'm talking to. Uh, is it on the public internet where I can find it? Or is it behind some NAT, uh, maybe a, you know, like a local firewall? Uh, and so this is this gets to that function where we're talking about the galaxies and stars, and you know, galaxies have this governance role. What they also have is a responsibility to route packets. They they serve as super nodes that have a greater degree of connectivity and connection to the rest of the network. Uh, so that when a planet comes online or needs to talk to someone it has not talked to before, it asks its sponsor, if I'm a planet, my sponsor is a star, and if I'm a star, my sponsor is a galaxy, uh, for a route to that other node that I'm trying to communicate with. And they, you know, there is a mechanism by which they negotiate that route and figure out how to talk to one another over uh, the internet line. And once that connection is formed, now our packets transmit peer to peer, but galaxies and stars serve the role of figuring out how to talk to one another. And so what you just did here, uh, you just installed the osmosis application from AJ. And so what had to happen there was we had a connection because we are <laughs> That's pathway. pretty cool. That's pretty cool, right? I yeah, sent you a DM originally. We got to negotiate a connection. I just sent you a link to the application that AJ had. When you went to install it, you had to negotiate a connection to AJ's ship, which is somewhere. I don't know where. Uh, you got that connection and you just installed the Osmosis app directly from his ship. And now you're running it and you know now you're self-hosting your own Osmosis. So, okay, so this this the value prop for this is a little bit more obvious to me. Is it that you're able to circumvent stuff like Apple App Stores or, you know, Google Apps, stuff like that, right, where they take 30% of the developer fee, and then you're able to distribute these applications directly to the end user? And that was relatively, that was extremely painless. I mean, I'm in the Osmosis app, and I'm, I'm just, it's being served up by, what, AJ's ship, Urbit ship? Is that what's going on? My mind. Oh, I, and now it's served by yours. So now you own it. Uh, and that's the big difference. You know, this goes back to that Web 2, Web 3 analogy. In Web 2, uh-huh. you access something that someone else searched. In Urbit, you run your own thing. 
all of it out yourself and you talk to them directly. Right. And you get them by installing them directly from other people who could be companies, you know, organizations of some kind, or they could be individuals like AJ who, you know, just wrote this and put it on a ship and now anyone can get it from him. Okay. Dumb follow up question. Does this circumvent the great Chinese firewall? <laughs> it's always, yeah, it's always a tough question. So, um, right, because remember, it, it was, uh, so I, I think it was like. You know what? Probably because they don't know anything about Urbit and aren't looking. Uh, but if they right. wanted it, you know, like. In the future, yeah. they could definitely, right. So remember, it was like I think I think it might have been 2020 when uh, it was like Yearn and Uniswap, all of the unilaterally they 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 went down because it was a DNS level. Uh, I I believe it was like a DNS level attack. You know, China China wanted them to go down. They said you know people were laundering money through these front ends, and then they went down for for about a day. Uh, Yearn Uniswap, you know, curved these these all the DeFi protocols, and so that. I think that was the event that lit a fire up the errors on DNS, meaning you can no longer access app.osmosis.zone. Uh -huh. And this would circumvent that because you yes. wouldn't be accessing osmosis via app.osmosis.zone. You'd be accessing it from, you know, downloadersinper.wherever wherever it's hosted slash apps slash. That is, that is powerful. That is so exciting. So exciting. And it's possible now, today. Right, because yeah. you built it, AJ. You, you built the thing. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so so let's talk about that. I mean, it, it looks simple, right? It's a familiar front end. Anybody who's ever gone to Osmosis could see that this is just the Osmosis front end. But in the background, that it fundamentally changed the game. It's completely uncensorable. Yeah. So. Um, just sorry, AJ, you have a trade. Sorry. I'm curious to let's talk about like what else you can do with this than beyond just sort of the front end because there is more. I guess, yeah, that kind of gets into the more more interesting Urbit narrative to me that I think is kind of where Urbit's going to have his, its feet come under it. Um, it's just that the, I guess the kind of like high level two, I'm going to spit out two words and then kind of try to unpack that. So kind of the two words that have been floated around the Urbit community for a while are permissionless composability um so permissionless meaning that anyone can kind of hook into the data that's on your urbit ship without um without kind of ahead of time the developers being aware of that and setting up um apis so then composability being that apps can build on top of each other um so if we think about kind of like the the twitter case um twitter has a set of apis that they've had to kind of allocate resources separately to, to build and deploy. And of course, um, I think because of the recent cutbacks, the Twitter APIs mostly stopped working. So kind of third-party integrations have fully stopped. And also, you don't really have first-party privileged access to um, Twitter's data and be able to build. Like, if you want to build a, a new interface for Twitter, then um, you'd have to work very closely with them and could be kind of shut down completely. Um, or as we've seen in the kind of Apollo Reddit case recently, um, Reddit all of a sudden out of nowhere just decides to jack up their prices and then it, the third-party interfaces and kind of other integrations of the application just kind of shut down out the gate. Um, so kind of how Urbit steps in and how it solves that problem is 
the data and the code both run on your server. Um, so what that means is if you had a series of trades going through Uniswap, those would just be kind of stored almost as a file on your server. Um, and then any other application or developer that wants to kind of integrate with that data that you're collecting can just publish an application, you install it, and then all of a sudden, let's say someone created an order book, and then the order book just imports your Uniswap trades, and you can just see the kind of history of everything you've done, maybe profit and losses, and could even go into stuff like helping you with accounting. Um, so those are kind of basic integrations and things that um, are really easy to build on Urbit because the data is just kind of there in a standardized format. Um, you don't have to worry about dealing with a different API and authentication and all the stuff that would kind of grind a project like that to a halt. Um, or ending. So it. just being able to... Yeah, and it's yeah, also the security side. So it's still just all on your machine and you can stop things from going out of that so you're not forced to kind of trust someone with your data. It's just all running on your server and you have control over it. Hey, Cosmonaut. Want to survive and thrive through this bear market? The best way to do it is to stake your coins risk-free. If you hold Atom, Osmo, Canto, or Celestia's TIA, you could compound your tokens risk-free by staking with Interchain FM. Your delegation supports the Cosmos radio station, so we can keep bringing you the alpha year after year. Now, back to the show. I want to present an anecdote, and this is a... Uh, this is like a meta thing. It's a proxy anecdote that was told by Amir Taki that, you know, he was talking about Richard Stallman. Uh, Amir Taki, if y'all remember, was, I feel like, one of the early pioneers of Bitcoin and this entire crypto movement. Uh, he he is an anarchist. And so this this little tidbit I, I took from... His talk at the uh, it was like the the Web three summit back in like it was like 2018, 2019. So he said this about Richard Stallman. He said Richard Stallman saw what was happening in the eighties, which was an originally idealistic computing movement, and that movement saw a huge influx of capital in a short period of time, and that's not unlike crypto. The culture of that community began to change completely, right? We, we saw that too in crypto. What Richard Stallman proposed was that it didn't have to be that way all about money, that we could build our own operating systems. We can build our own technology that is owned by us, the Web3 natives. This is the software that we've built. This is the software that we're building, and this is where it should go. There's a thing called Linux and you know how you have Windows on your computer. Now you could change that and put another OS in it. So my question to you guys is how much of Urbit's original vision was inspired by Stallman's vision of the evolution of the web? I obviously have no clue. Uh, um, a, a lot of the a lot of the core narratives, values, and principles that I picked up uh, through osmosis at Urbit Assembly seemed to, you know, seem to reflect that core essence. Yeah, I think the inspiration is probably not direct, but indirect, because, you know, Stalin was part of a 
you know, a pretty big movement and certainly his ideas spread beyond him uh, to the point that I don't know if they're directly attributable to him. But I do, I do know that Urbit is frequently likened to the early cypherpunk movement in the nineties. Galen sort of counts himself among that group. This is a big part of what uh, drew him to this project. I think he joined in 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Um, mm-hmm. So the whole, you know, the Stuart Graham, the whole Earth Catalog, uh, that whole group of people that were thinking about, you know, what a truly open web would mean. Uh, that's all the sort of spiritual context that uh, that Urban does to a large degree embody. I, speaking of spiritual context, another thing that was interesting about Urbit Assembly was that your panels did touch upon topics that were greater than just the tech itself. The tech is more of a means to an end. You guys talked about the um, it was like the the family, right? There, there's there, there's there's tiebacks to why people would want to use these things um, and, and tiebacks to a greater spiritual purpose, which I found fascinating about this community because that's what's missing in Ethereum and Cosmos. So that was, you know, but it, it's actually um, very much there in the early Bitcoin movement that's kind of been diluted over the years because more, more people have uh, entered the space. But in Urbit, it's very much about that, <laughs> and that one that that was what drew me into to to Urbit, seeing this this fascinating uh, new cult develop. <laughs> I see that in a good way. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like Urbit is. Uh, AJ, have you been to any weirder conferences than Urbit Assembly? Um, that was kind of the the first my first foray into like tech conferences or crypto conferences so i think i just jumped right into the best of it but okay so i am a i'm a conference veteran and that was one of a kind that was that that was almost like going to a crypto conference that was held in the middle of burning man now i've never been to burning man but you know i i'm just guessing that there's that right there's like there's, you know, spiritual leadership, people talking about the grander vision and tie into like a greater goal um, as part of the broader narrative. And at the same time, like a subset of the talks would be, oh, you know, who you know, our, our programming language. And there's 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 also this cult like following around who, you know, people seem to worship that language, <laughs> what it could do for urban development. So it was, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He, Right. So, yeah, and then it, it closes with um, with some, like, a cypherpunk anarchic talk. Anyway, it was, it was just fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so we're, we're coming up close to the end here, but we're going to take some questions or comments from the audience. And Oz, Oz Sozin says, related anecdote. About 20 years ago, I asked, Stallman, what do you think about the capital and resource inequality between free open source and proprietary software? He said he wasn't interested in that. 
Perhaps we would have been on a different timeline if ideologues of the era were also a bit more strategic and practical in protecting the sustainability of their value systems and communities. Oh, man, what an oxymoron. The ideologues being practical. (laughs) 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 If only, yeah. I, I I think it's it's almost like the the two like practic real world practicality and something who's like deeply someone who's deeply ideological almost don't in, don't sit in the same brain <laughs> almost. Um, but anyway, I pulled up the grants page because it's like to me this 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 spins a uh, coherent story. Right, you want someone to implement a Git server on Urbit, build an email tool chain, single sign-on, implement a wiki. All of this to create or to replicate a Web two experience, but on a completely decentralized intergalactic network. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, we don't necessarily want to. Like there, there are parts of .web two that are good. Like you know, a lot of things work pretty well and they feel good. You know, like web two has definitely really gotten user experience down. It's been a big thing that has come out of the you know tech startup movement. Um, those are things we want to preserve. Like we do want to get to really good user experiences, and we're certainly not there yet. Um, and there are you know plenty of things that have come out of it that are good. Like I, I, I like email. I use email a lot. Uh, I find it fairly nice that I can communicate with just about anybody uh, via an email address, regardless of how they access email. And um, they're like, Ur- Urbit doesn't isn't aiming to be a monolithic thing where you must use Urbit in order to use, you know, like you have to exit the old internet in order to be in Urbit. There are plenty of ways in which it can bridge to uh, existing systems. Crypto has been a big one that we've intentionally chosen to bridge to. Uh, early on, but there are quite a few other things that we would like to see replicated that make uh, Urbit able to speak other protocols and to, to other kinds of systems. AJ, I mean, I know you've, you've thought about this quite a bit, have some, some takes here. Yeah, I think there's kind of the, there's like the cult senator, but I don't, I guess I don't want that to kind of push away the people on the, the exterior even if you kind of haven't bought into the full 10, 20 year vision of Urban replacing everything, which is kind of arguable whether it should or not, there's a lot of like low hanging fruit integrations um, to kind of make Urban more viable. And I think the, the self-hosted front end is kind of like the first big example of that. Um, so that's why I'm trying to push just making that as seamless as possible. Cause it's still kind of a, a manual process. Um, so that's going to be a big unlock to just kind of have a whole suite of applications that are just ready for you on the network. And then going forward, um, a lot of stuff's just going to get there because the Urbit like developer it's the way of things that are built is um, you kind of have a, a base layer of stuff that gets protocolized and then any application can kind of just hook into that and build on top of it um, pretty easily. So kind of the, canonical example of this is um pals um so you kind of have a a list of friends on urbit that have are being tracked by a specific application that is um i think installed by default and then um 
you that that continues to grow, but any application that is built on top of Urbit can just easily hook in and see your friends list if you give it access. And then um, you're kind of that's like the first step is replacing. Oh, I have a new application. I lost all my followers. Lost all my friends. Have to start over. And that's kind of why all these web applications have so much lock in is because they have guardrails on the data. Um, so kind of Urbit's more of a everyone wins as more stuff is built and everything grows. Um, and Web2 is all about just kind of guarding what's yours. Yeah, you 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 just alluded to a feature unlock of Web3 that was lightly touched on around 2018-2019. Um, the ideas that came out of Handshake that then were propagated by Naval was that you could have a uh, portable social graph, right? That was kind of the idea that people were slightly talking about back then when uh, when like decentralized identity was was as or kind of as hot as NFTs are today. I mean, people kind of forgot that narrative, but I think we're we're going to remember that narrative in a year and a half from now. Again, it's going to become like it's going to come back in full swing. Um, but Urbit, Urbit seems to be tackling that problem. And I mean, I mean, that's like the destination that a lot of people are LARPing about trying to get to. And I think that Urbit's one of the few like, viable solutions actually building something toward that end. Yeah, I think, I guess I listened to maybe Naval early on talking about Web3 as, or even Naval and all the VCs talking about Web3 as application Legos and everything that gets built just once and then you can always just kind of hook in and build on top of that and um, at least from what I've seen that doesn't seem to have happened um, in Web3 there's still kind of some lock-in on different things and kind of I feel like the the project like the path that Urban is going down is kind of the the full vision of what Web3 was supposed to be where um, everything gets built once and then you can just kind of hook into it and you also don't have to worry about security as much because if you are hosting data, it's not all on chain where someone can just go and scan it. It's on your server, on your machine. So there's benefits to that. And also the cost savings of not having to push everything on chain is a major benefit of Urban. So are you... Yeah. Great. Sorry if I may. There's Because it, one of the issues with application building blocks in traditional Web3 where you don't have something like Urban is that the mechanism for data storage is a global consensus Byzantine fault tolerance system, which is just the wrong choice of technology for storing an emoji reaction to my mother's text message. You know, there's a, there's like all kinds of data that you just don't want to put on a blockchain. It's totally senseless to put on a blockchain because it's only meaningful to me. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't need to be something that exists on what a blockchain is designed for, which is data that can't be copied that is supposed to be valuable uh, to represent ownership and the fact that i reacted to my mom's text message the fact that i own that response is you know it's not something i need to sell or transfer or protect in the same way and blockchains just are not a good solution for the vast majority of data which is fairly inconsequential except to the parties involved in reading it you still want it to be private Right, you still want it to last forever. 
you know, I don't want to have to worry about something going down and all of my information that is, you know, accumulated for 10 years going along with it. I want it to just be there. Uh, but I don't need a blockchain for that. Like blockchains are really good for, they're like the only thing for representing digital value and scarcity. And they're really good at that, but they're really bad at all the other stuff, which is metadata, private data, uh, the kinds of things that Urbit is really good for. And when you pair the two together, well, you can actually now implement, you can realize that whole vision because you have both halves of this equation, how I represent value in a decentralized way, how I represent everything that's not globally valuable, it's locally valuable. You should do that at local capacity. And Urbit is for local, private, secure data. Powerful. Powerful. Uh, it's, so this this is why I would love to have you come back and debate the everything on-chain maximalists. We have a, actually, so, you know, I think it's, it's like Scott uh, from Argus Chain, you know, he's building this Cosmos gaming chain and his thesis is that everything and anything should be on-chain uh, so long as you solve the scalability of it. So that would be an interesting debate. Important asterisk. Yeah. Sorry? That says that's an important asterisk, the, uh, so long as you solve the scalability. Right. I mean, that's, you mean that, that fun of the, so the, that there's, there's two different visions of the world, right? And you obviously belong in the constrained vision. And I'm, and I'm referencing, um, uh, Thomas Sowell right now. There's like two types of brains in the world, constrained vision people and unconstrained vision people. So people who belong in the unconstrained camp, tend to view the world more through the lens of utopia and people in the constrained camp tend to view the world uh, in the context of constraints and limitations more set in reality, but maybe not so much about what could be. So, and, you know, through those two different lenses, you arrive at very different conclusions, which is why you have, you know, people on the left versus the right in American, you know, political context. So, um, I mean, that's like a little aside anyway. Yeah. I, think, uh, I guess like a, a quick benefit of like the off chain side of things is kind of, I think if you store everything on chain, you're always going to be hitting some sort of privacy, um, breach at some point. If you're, if you're kind of encrypting the messages you're sending to your mom, then it doesn't matter because they're still on chain and they exist there forever. So at some point, someone's going to be able to decrypt that. And um, but whereas if you're running it on your own server, it's just on your server, and your mom's server, and um, there is no kind of you. If you take those down or delete them, then that's kind of the end of that message. Um, so there's that that benefit. So what happens? Uh, like, how do you solve for content moderation for a self-hosted Twitter? Then, you know, let's say it's like someone, like in the most egregious case, someone propagates CSAM or whatever, and your ship inadvertently hosts it. What do you What do you do about that? Um, well, I, th I think it's kind of a you subscribe to different moderators, and you might kind of choose to use the the unfiltered version of a service or kind of the filter version of a service which would be the unfiltered plus add-ons or you trust a certain person to kind of 
manage that content for you and that gets into the right right to exit. So if you're kind of at any point you're mad with Elon's moderation or another moderator's kind of take on things, then you can either host one yourself for a group of people that are interested in a certain thing or kind of just find a different person to to work under. Yeah, by default there are no moderators there, but you know, unless someone builds a system that has moderation capability in it. And there's no reason you couldn't build something that is essentially centralized uh, that has the ability to be moderated. But in a network level, in Urbit, all you can do is choose who you talk to and who you don't talk to. And you know, if there is an individual that is spreading CSAM or anything you don't want to see, you can block them at a packet level and not receive any information from them. You, you can just shut off that communication, right? Uh, so you can always choose who you communicate with and who you don't communicate with. You have no ability to choose that for anybody else with one exception, which is star at galaxy level, right? I mean, getting back to an earlier conversation, stars with galaxies, they brought packets, right? They're responsible for peer discovery. If I come onto the network and I start, you know, being uh, egregious in some way, shape, or form, a star, you know, my sponsor, my star can decide I'm not going to sponsor you anymore. And I'm going to tell everyone what you've done and no one wants to sponsor you more, in which case you have no ability to talk to anyone else on the network because no one can perform peer discovery for you or will perform that, mm-hmm. right? You can ask any of 65,000 other stars that are online, if there were 65,000, all of those online, uh, but they can all universally decide that you are to be reviled and not talk to you. That's a definition make on made on all of their parts individually. Right. So this gets back to the like you it's always in the operator's choice who they communicate with, who they don't. And for sponsors, that can, you know, that can render a planet which is property, which is, you know, back to the very beginning of this conversation, is it is a valuable thing. It can render that valuable thing completely useless. If the person using it has associated that identity with something awful and the rest of the network will talk to it, they've basically taken its value to zero because no one will ever talk to them again. And that's part of why interactions on Urbit tend to be pretty nice uh, because people remember just as they do in real life. It's like, you know, when you meet a person in real life, usually they're not a dick. Uh, whereas when you read them, meet them on the internet, they often are because the stakes are a lot lower on the internet where you're actually kind of an anon behind an account where you can spin up another one if you want. And it is acceptable behavior to be, you know, of low reputational, uh, you know, of low reputation because identities are cheap. Under but they're valuable just as they are in real life. You don't solely your name because if you turn your entire social circle against you and they tell everyone to not talk to you, your life is going to be kind of miserable. And so the urban network emulates that human mechanic of don't ruin your name. Yeah, because if you do, it's bad. Right. I like that. That's that's the inherent built-in disincentive mechanism similar to what's built into Bitcoin, similar to what's built into like the validator network where Everything rests on your right. It's like everybody acknowledges trust is a good thing. You want trust. You need trust in order to make society very effective. Uh, you know, you can build trustless systems, which it, it, in a world where you cannot trust other people, and you do that as a reaction 
to the idea that, you know, the world is not to be trusted. We must escape that and make sure that everyone can fend for themselves and of all their stuff. But it's, it's, it's better if you can trust people. And so urban is generally a high trust network, not a low trust network, because people actually do trust one another because of this mechanic of, of built-in reputation. Right. And that's, and that's a good thing. Imagine so, right. And what about this edge case? If if a malicious developer successfully gets like a malicious executable packet and passes it off as if it were a legitimate application through the Urbit network, what happens then? Let's let's uh, run a thought experiment. Dark EJ. Uh, has shipped yeah. Moses app that actually takes every single trade you do and shuttles it back to Dark AJ's central server to keep track of what it is that everyone that has downloaded that is doing. Well, let's imagine someone finds out about that because all that code is open. There is no notions closed source software on Urbit. When you're running that, you own the code and you can go look at it. So let's imagine some developer gets that and they realize like, hey, my ship you know, keeps sending these packets to you know, dark ages shit. And, uh, why is that? And they go and do some data. They find out, oh, that's because there's a line in this that is actually shuttling all of this information back to his ship. And that's not okay. Well, then they tell everyone and no one downloads that application anymore, or will download anything from him ever again, because he just burned his trust with all those people. Now, how you probably protect against that is like, whenever you download a piece of software, do you trust the person you're getting it from? Do you know them at all? Uh, like AJ, well, he's put a face behind this name and he's appeared on this podcast. He's probably pretty trustworthy because, you know, he's, he's not going to go and want to ruin that reputation. But if it's just some rando, you know, it's lyrics will dur and not dire, you know, and we download from him and realize, oh, this is Silicon that's imitating AJ. And we blacklist him very bad, right? One way you can protect against this is be careful where you install software from. Uh, if it's a low trust identity, meaning, you know, an unknown planet, you might want to be careful about it. Ask other people first. Uh, you could also look at, well, is this software shipped from a star? If a star is distributing software, well, I mean, stars cost thousands of dollars. Like, there's just an economic cost to a person distributing something bad from a star. And so you can generally, you know... <laughs> As that, that you don't have to know the star as well to know that it is in the star's best interest to not tank the value of its real estate because they're now losing thousands of dollars. So, for instance, Holium, this company, uh, they ship all their software for a star called Hostive. And, you know, you know that that star is associated with the company Holium. There's a, a DAO called Dalton Collective, which is named Dalton Collective because Dalton is a star. And that star is known to be Dalton. And those people have identified themselves in a number of ways, and you generally know them to be trustworthy. And so stars actually serve as uh, a, a trust route, right? Some node on the network that is known to be more trustworthy than others because it is a more valuable thing. And so people build brands, identities around that, and they just have a greater degree of trust by default. And the same, of course, is true of galaxies, but to a great degree. So that's, that's one way in which you get around this idea of uh, people distributing malicious packets or software on the network. Uh, they, you can leverage the address space uh, and reputations. 
Makes sense. So you've effectively built a web of trust, like a reputation system now. It's, I mean, the, you've got proof of identity, you know, for, for your consensus system. Yeah, your like social way. consensus network. Right. It's not built in in any technical way other than the fact that the identity yeah. is scarce and you can remember them, right? But, but it's a... Uh, like human brain stuff where, you know, because we remember... People. Yeah, it's, it's an it's an economic scheme in your game theory or in the game theory that you've set up. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, all right. Before we log off, I have here this link that's linked in the live stream. We're going to link it in the description of the show notes. This is what I used to spin up my Urbit Planet to give myself that name. So, if you spin up. Uh, your own name, your own pet pee, so to speak. It only takes a few minutes. It took me a couple of seconds to sign up and be able to message Josh. So if you use this and message any one of us using our pet pees, you see it here. To, you know, take a screenshot. Then we could we could use uh, we could use Urbit. And Josh just sent me another link, and we're going to share this with you here if you yourself want to try out Urbit. And here's another. Go ahead. The other, the other one, the first one, that's free. You can get on the network right away. Uh, pretty easy. This one's paid, but this unlocks a totally different experience than the one you got before. Uh, and you can go to holium.com to learn more about it. But there are... Uh, there are multiple people that have hosting providers. Just, you know, I think it's good to have options. Um, this one is worth checking out as well. I'd say like the other one, Talon and Lolium are probably the, the two most progressed and have the most, uh, you know, rich experiences built around them, but they are two different experiences. Why is it worth checking out? You want to take this one, AJ? Yeah, I can take it. Um, been working with them kind of part time on the side, but there's definitely, it's kind of the goal is to take it to the next level where not everything is built in Who and on the every backend, um, and also just kind of a better user experience. So I could kind of share my screen real quick if. Oh yeah, go ahead. That's easier. Yeah, while well, he's doing that, Holyden uh, builds a product called Rel, which is this. Uh, collaborative workspace where you like interact with software in the context. Well, you know, Slack is a chat application. Holium is a framework for interacting with arbitrary applications that people build all together. So they have primitives for shared cursors in space where you can plug in Figma-like shared cursors into any application you build. Uh, they have a built-in wallets that allows you to identify all of the people that are in this space. They have a document editor that when you're open editing it, it is by default shared with all the people in this space. Of course, a global chat and the ability to just drop into voice and video rooms with the people in the same space. And that is all extensible, right? Any developer can come in and build their own application into Rel, the product is called, that takes advantage of all those primitives. And so you get a compounding effect of, well, here it is and show that off them. I yeah, so, so it's kind of a. Wait, can can I uh, can I guess as to what this is? It's like Figma, Slack, GitHub, 
what else? GitLab. Uh, what other productivity tools are there? All in one. Uh, charts. Uh, wait, what is it? Lucid charts. It and much more. Yeah, that's the that's the goal. Um, I guess the kind of quick description I, that makes the most sense to me is uh, Figma, but for everything. So kind of being able to enable the uh, multiplayer experience for any application. Multiplayer that's... experience for for work for for do, getting in the grind. <laughs> You're gamifying the work. You know, hanging out with your buds. Oh. You know, whatever whatever it may be. Yeah, so you can just pretty much log into it like you would any desktop and you're kind of greeted with the familiar kind of take something similar to Mac OS, but you have kind of your own personal web browser. Um, also does all sorts of window management. So kind of the, the long-term vision here. Um, so I'm running on Linux right now, which is still kind of in active development, but... Um, the ability of having a desktop like this in a way where you can kind of stream data live to a set of peers is is enabling that multiplayer experience. So one of the things is you can go in and create a room, which is a, a voice call, and they're actually... God, I could so see one right now. Gen Z using this as a replacement for event and playing Minecraft with each other. <laughs> and you have me... He has even talked about the... Uh, so there's a live page they have called Basket, uh, which... Did you guys even build that or did someone else build that? Um, I think someone from Assembly Capital did, so yeah. pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Build this out. Yeah, you know, close, but but different organization built something called Basket, which is like a you know, collaborative meme collection where you can, you know, share your basket of memes with your group of people there. What do you call them? Around the space. But you've got this yeah. group of people all compute collaboratively. And so you've got your own urban dictionary called Lex called Lexicon full of your definitions of, you know, local terms and basket for all of your memes. You've got documents uh, that you everyone shares and they can jump into rooms and, you know, uh, scheme about memes or whatever. Oh my goodness. I I, I know people who do that. Like <laughs> just entire yeah. telegram groups, multiple telegram groups just scheming about memes. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, Realm actually looks like an operating system. Uh, it does. Look at that. This is really cool. Uh, you know, once this becomes a mature application, I can't see Gen Z not using this. Like, I, I think your ideal demographic is Gen Z. Like, they would pick this up quick. Hey, Jay, you're Gen Z, aren't you? Yeah, 22, so. Yeah, yeah. See there. You go. Yeah, this is kind of the the familiar urban apps, but also kind of slotted in alongside those are um, kind of realm specific apps, whether that's your settings or your browser. Um, and then you can kind of the goal is to just keep taking this further and further yeah. and into space specific stuff. So you'll be able to easily enable collaboration. Yeah, this looks this looks like your app store, or it looks like your mobile interface after you've download, downloaded the app. But in this case, you all saw how I download that, downloaded the app. I didn't go to a place where it was word of mouth. One of the things Realm lets you do is define which applications. So I don't know if you do this yet, but it will be done. It's, it's some version of that of like, you could define all of the software that is installed by default 
for new members of the space, uh, recommend things to them. And so they actually, you can sort of like generate your own app store for your group. Uh, and those could be things that you have built, uh, even like AJ built the Uniswap and Osmos things in like a day. Uh, so like building applications on Urban is not. What? You built that in a day, you said? Um, yeah, I guess the, the first version of Uniswap took about an hour just kind of building, just taking the code that already existed, build it and deploy it on Urban. So kind of that's that's where it gets really exciting is just um, one-click deployments are going to be possible on Urban here in the next year or two. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine how fast the pace of development would be if you integrate with like an AI that could basically do it relatively quickly. You just turn it tell it to do it. You know, an hour, I guess. I guess, you know, there's time segments less than an hour, but yeah, like the, the building your own bespoke software for whatever you want and deploying it and sharing it with just your friends is a viable thing on Urban, right? It's like, you just want to build your own bespoke software. It doesn't have to be an entire business that we go and spit up and raise venture capital for. It's like the weekend project becomes a thing of the past. It's like the, you know, spur of the moment project because we're in the group chat thinking about a tool that we need. And we just go and ask the AI, build it and then deploy it. And then boom, all of our friends have it. And that's it. No business model, nothing else. We just built an app because we wanted it. And there it is. This ruins the moat for a lot of projects. <laughs> <laughs> just like... Build yeah, yeah. it. Uh, great. <laughs> Good and bad. It's pros and cons. Okay, so what are you showing me right now? You you just successfully what connected me? Hi to you. Yeah, so this is kind of a the Unix equivalent or the urban equivalent of like a Unix ping. So that's I'm just kind of hitting your server and that's saying that I'm able to communicate with you. Just kind cool. of showing off the the urban terminal. Nice. Oh wow! So you could you could chat with me directly on your terminal. Yeah. So kind of all the all the protocols between um, me and you are defined in an application, but I could also kind of trigger those actions that my server sends to you directly from this terminal and and see the responses back. Um, so there's a lot of interesting like developer experience stuff that isn't possible on like more kind of broken up stacks that is on Urbit. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, this is cool. Is there, are, are there other things you want to show me or is this the the main thing? Um, Yeah, I guess the, the main thing is, is voice call and, and video call and kind of collaborative cursors, which aren't any people in right now, but. There can be momentarily. <laughs> so integration with Twitch with Kick, the streaming apps will just make this an easy sell for all the gamers. Like this is more compelling than any of the you know Web three gaming apps I've seen. Actually, and it's not and Urban's not even like a gaming app. Hey, hey, Cosmonauts. Yeah, I'm I'm also in here now. Whoa. Oh, hello. Can I join? How do I join that? So we'll have to get you on on realm first on realm okay i gotta get, get in realm. realm. okay got it and that's where that holium that hosting.holium.com currently realm is in private alpha uh, and okay they're they're working on making it like stable af and okay you're not quite there yet so it is still paid only and you know you got it willing to 
pay for the pay uh, mm. to get this stuff. Um, nice. And which is worth it. And you can help them test and, you know, see all the features as they come out. It's this thing updates on pretty much a daily basis. Um, they're rolling stuff out all the time. You can follow them. I think it was at Holium Corp. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, ultimately it will open up to the public. I think later this year is probably the roadmap and, uh, along with, you know, a native iOS app has this rooms functionality and all kinds of stuff. And, um, then it, you know, will probably be more widely open, but they're keeping the, you know, wanting to keep it pretty tight to make sure that the experience is really good. Sweet. So perhaps future episodes of Interchain FM slash Interchain Jam will be hosted in Realm. Possibly. We'll see. Oh, it could be. That's cool. All right. So we've, we've run extremely over time, but how can people find you? How can people discover more about Urbit? I think we've already covered a lot of how they do that, but how can people find you? Well, they can find me, you know, best way is really going to yeah. work whatever, but you know, there's many be both of us are pretty easy to find because we're, you know, all here and there's our IDs. Um, you know, you can get on for free using that cloud hosting link and send us a message and it'll eventually make its way through and then we can talk. Uh, you can go to all your hosting and find people that way. Uh, that's, you know, I think onwards you right into that group that you were in AJ, the realm for under call. Um, you can find us on Twitter. I'm that, and I think AJ here, that, which will, here's will. Do you imagine 10 years into the future or even 20 years uh, where a, a, like mass adoption of Urbit happens and you basically don't exist on the grid if you don't have a PAP P. The same way if you don't have a handle on Web2, you basically don't exist in the internet? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, great. Um, so, yeah, if you've been tuning in for this long, I consider you one of the smartest people I know because the smartest people that I know are Urbit Pilds. They've known about Urbit. They talk about Urbit. And somehow, you know, if you're doing the work of trying to unpack Urbit, then you've probably got your finger on the pulse of like where the future is going i mean decentralized web is still relatively new but i think it's that narrative is going to come back in full swing and with a vengeance when the next bull market comes back even though we're still really really early like so damn early but um i think there's going to be speculative energy coming back around this narrative you know, when Naval tweets about it again. Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.